Good morning to you all. Today we're starting a new series of studies into a Bible book, and this time it's the Epistle of James, or the Letter of James, if you want to call it that, towards the back of our New Testament. For today we'll be looking at the first 18 verses of chapter 1. At the start of any series, it's good to find who actually wrote the book and discover what he was trying to achieve. Today's letters, if anyone still writes letters, generally have the author's signature at the bottom. But back 2,000 years, the writer's name was generally at the start. And here we're introduced to a person called James. There are, however, a number of guys called James in the New Testament. I don't think we've got any James here with us this morning, but they wouldn't be involved anyway. But the author is widely thought to be someone whom they call James the Great, the half-brother of Jesus. Yep, Jesus was not an only child. In Matthew 13, 55, we read of his brothers James, Josie, Simon and Judas, and writers of the day talked about his sisters, although their names are not recorded. We're not told, but perhaps James worked with his older brother Jesus in Joseph's carpentry business. While they might have got on quite well in those days, they certainly didn't agree when Jesus commenced his ministry. For Mark 3.21 tells us that when his family heard what was happening, they said he was insane, or more politely, out of his mind. No wonder his brothers didn't believe him. However, following Jesus' resurrection, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and 7 that after that, after the resurrection, Jesus was seen by James and then by all the apostles. I wonder what the brothers said to each other then. Following that meeting, things changed dramatically for James and he soon became one of the chief elders in the church at Jerusalem. And James wrote from that city prior to the meeting of the Jerusalem council, which Luke records in Acts 15. At that council, James, along with Peter and Paul, ratified the decision to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. And that council met in AD 49, which means James probably wrote the letter about AD 46 to 48. It would have been about then, as serving as a church leader for many years, James was then stoned to death as a martyr by order of the high priest around about AD 62 to 68. James could have proudly opened his letter saying, I am James, the brother of Jesus the Christ. Instead, he humbly introduces himself as James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he humbly, and uh, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad among the nations, greetings. So why is James an important letter and what's it worth studying? Why should we do it? Well, Chuck Swindle, who runs the Ministry of Insight for Living, he wrote, the book of James looks a bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, dressed up in New Testament clothes. It has a consistent focus on practical action in the life of faith, encouraging people to act like God's people. The pages of James are filled with direct commands to pursue a life of holiness. In the mind of this early church leader, Christians evidenced their faith by walking in certain ways and not in others. For James, a faith that does not produce real life change is a life, is a faith that is worthless. In the first section of this letter, James starts by talking about the trials and temptations we all face. 
temptations and trials, sometimes with these things too. Most people know I'm not a fan of many of the newer songs we sing these days, but I realise that some of the older ones weren't so hot either. I found that out when I went to Devonport recently, was asked to lead a seniors sing, and they gave me things to sing which I hadn't sung for 50, 40 years. There's one that some of you might remember. The, go, the chorus goes, Nothing really matters if the Lord loves me. You remember it, Elizabeth? You can't, Kathy. You're too young. <laughs> well, there are a few people who remember it. We probably sang it enthusiastically when we were young, but would I sing it now? No. It's far too simplistic and naive. After all, does it matter when your loved one dies? Does it matter when your family implodes and breaks apart? Does it matter when your job dis disappears in the, in the pandemic and you don't know how you're going to cope? Does it matter when you end up in hospital with COVID or cancer? Of course it matters. These things tear us apart and shatter our lives. So what does James say about these difficulties which can be so overwhelming? Now this is rather annoying because that's only supposed to come up well, it is coming up. I get the whole lot up here at once and it looks... I'm glad it's working. In verse 2, he said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And my initial reaction to that would be, you've got to be kidding. I'm supposed to be happy because my wife died? Come on. When you finally get over that outburst, and you read, boy, you discover James is not talking about the trials themselves, but about the potential those trials have for bringing about changes in your life and in your faith in God. He goes on to say, the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or as some uh, uh, um, translations call it endurance, or the old King James calls it patience. And patience is from the ancient Greek word hupomon, which means that word isn't so much the quality that helps you sit quietly and wait at the bus stop as it is the quality that helps you to continue on and complete and finish a marathon. And so he says, let perseverance or endurance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We can go two ways when facing trials. We can seek to battle through in our own strength, wondering if God really cares, or we can have faith Remembering that God is in control and being glad that God is using some experience, unpleasant though it might happen to be, to fine-tune our faith, increase our dependence upon him, develop our Christian character and bring us closer to spiritual maturity. God doesn't send them, but he allows trials in our lives so that we'll grow up spiritually. Effectively, the Lord is saying, you have faith in me, you say? Good. Let's see how strong that faith is. Trials can make you stronger and take us from the realm of theory to the realm of reality so we can start living out our faith in the real world. And that is what the book of James is all about, living out our faith in the real world. Paul, who had more trials and troubles than most people, echoes that same thought in Romans 5 where he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. It's really a bit like a pyramid. 
Sometimes life is all smooth and we sail along. But when trials come, things get a bit rocky. We all have times like that and trials come and cause our boat to rock around a bit. Disconcerting when the, so what I see up here isn't the same as what I see back here. And those trials allow one character trait to build upon the other. And the first that we get is perseverance or patience. I read of a father who gave his baby daughter a middle name of patience, hoping that she would grow up to be a loving young lady with a kind, patient attitude. But he said, she was the most trying baby we ever had. She had major colic problems and cried almost continually. That ring a bell with some of you young parents over there? It can be trying. This dad said we had learnt, really learnt to develop patience ourselves during that trying period in our lives. It was a real learning curve for us. And character. Enduring one trial strengthens our character and prepares up for more trials to come. So our character becomes stronger as the days go by. And hope, that certain knowledge that God is in control and that he will lead us and carry us as he's done in the past. These things in themselves don't produce faith, but they strengthen the faith we already have, so that we learn, that God is, learn what God is trying to show us through the difficulty we're going through. Mind you, it takes quite a while before you can appreciate that. It was a long time after my wife died that I finally understood that God really does answer prayer. I'd been praying that God would take away her sickness and suffering and wonder why he hadn't and probably getting a bit cranky with God at the same time. And it finally dawned on me that he had, that she would never suffer again. It mightn't mean the way I would have liked it, but God had answered my prayer. And I learnt from that experience. The famous preacher of past years, Charles Spurgeon, was averaging over 300 baptisms a year during his ministry and he wrote, trials can prove a wonderful work of God in us. I've looked back to times of trials with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I felt it then, to feel the power of faith as I'd felt it then, to hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then, and to see God at work as I saw him then. He would agree with the words Peter wrote in his epistle, where he said, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show your faith is genuine. It's been tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. When you're facing trials and problems, especially major ones, have you ever felt as though you were groping in the dark, didn't know which way to go, to whom you should turn, or what you should choose to do? Well, the people to whom James was writing, those 12 stives scattered abroad, were facing major trials. No doubt in their distress, they were really struggling to decide what to do, and James tells them, as with us, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 
As a young man, James lacks the wisdom to see that his brother, whom he treated with contempt, was actually the long-promised Messiah. Coming face to face with the resurrected Jesus is what it took to quickly gain the wisdom of faith that he lacked. And he encourages us, who feel we are needing spiritual insight in times of crises, to ask the Lord for the necessary wisdom we need, and not to doubt that he'll give it to us. While we should go to the Lord first, for me it's not a bad idea to sit down with some experienced person who's been in the same circumstances as we're going through and talk to them and ask them for their counsel in that regard. After all, Proverbs does tell us with many counsellors, there is wisdom. Going on from there, James says in verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. When you ask, you must believe. Despite our circumstances, we have every reason to believe in a God who loves us now and has plans to bless us into the future. Remember the old hymn, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. God says, written by Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me, to, for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Then there's the question of doubt. James knew a lot about doubt as he doubted about Jesus, his brother, for so long. But from that doubt came a radiant faith so strong he died for what he believed. So what's our attitude to spiritual doubts? I don't believe James would say that we must never have any spiritual questions and doubts. For I do believe it is okay to ask God why. After all, God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes God's ways seem strange and different, and sometimes they're scary. I don't believe we should never have questions about parts of God's word either. Even though God's word we know is true, there are parts difficult for us to understand and sometimes a bit hard for us to swallow. The truth is that many of us struggle with spiritual doubts at some time or other in our lives. And the great news is that we're not alone. Many godly Christians have followed that same pattern. C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham have all spoken of the struggle they've had with doubts. In one of his sermons, Francis Chan, whose DVDs we've watched here from Sunday morning, said, I'm still struggling with some of my doubts, still struggling with some of my joys. There are times that I, Francis Chan, doubt my salvation. There have been times in my life when I've even doubted the existence of God. Spiritual doubts can help us to really own our faith. If we never doubt, if we never question, we'll never truly understand why we believe what we believe. We will just be believing what we were told without asking, truly asking ourselves why these things matter. It's the answers we find during this period that let us really come to own our faith personally. 
Doubt can cause us to find answers for questions we've never asked before. Certainly the devil would love to use doubts to drive you away from God. But I think God allows us to have doubts that might draw us closer to him. Doubt is not the end of faith, in my opinion. I read, or I read somewhere where Christians are encouraged to simply believe, but not necessarily to believe simply. We need to think about what we believe. And wrestling with doubts and resolving them strengthens a Christian's faith. And Peter says, be sure and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you about what you believe. If you're experiencing spiritual doubt today, ask the Lord to work in your life and allow doubt to strengthen your faith. And why not talk to a friend that you know who's had some experience and see how they handle their uh, troubles with doubts. James goes on. And in verse 9 he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Seems a weird thing to say, doesn't it? James continues on with advice for all of us as we face trials and difficulties. The testings of life and the trials we go through have a way of levelling us all out, whether you're young or whether we're old, whether we're rich, whether we're poor. Here James is using a paradox. And a paradox is defined as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. Lots of them in the Bible. Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Weird thing to say, isn't it? Jesus said, whoever wants to be a leader must be your servant. Jesus also said, the last will be first and the first will be last. When trials and testings come to a poor person, if their faith in God is strong, they should try to rejoice that they possess spiritual riches that can never be taken away, no matter how little they have in this world. And when trials and testing come to a rich person, if the faith in God is strong, he should try to rejoice that although his riches in the world might one day collapse, and that's very, very possible in these pandemic days, the riches that he has in Christ can never be taken away and never lost. In other words, it's not your material resources that carry you through the trials and testing your life, it's your spiritual resources. The Bible itself, the peace of God, the promises of God, and the Holy Spirit within you they're the ones that give you the strength to carry through. We're in an incredible position with the resources we have. And James goes on, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person received the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Just as Jesus' famous sermon on the Mount begins with the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, so James follows that pattern in this verse. When you hear the word blessed or blessed, what's a blessed life mean to you? A nice home, a good family, good health, enough money, everything you could want, and you're blessed. But the people James was writing to were the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The early Christians were being persecuted and oppressed and were forced to flee to other countries to save their lives. 
They were experiencing not just a trial, but as James said in verse 2, trials of many kinds. Things were far from easy. They were complicated and confusing. As we look back in history, we'd never look at the lives of those early Christians and say they were living a blessed life. Not at all. James doesn't try to link their blessing to having their trials taken away, but rather calls them to hang in there and be steadfast and persevere under the trial because he knows that God is still at work and his grace will carry them through. Then he promises them that a person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those that love him. I don't believe this means eternal life itself, because eternal life is not dependent on our works, our faithfulness, our endurance of trials, but it's a gift from God for all who trust him. We read that in John 3:16, where whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's generally believed that these crowns are a reward given in eternity for Christians who refuse to stop trusting God, even when their trials on earth become difficult. Always amazes me that with all that God has done for us, that he's still offering rewards for faithful service. It blows my mind. There are five crowns mentioned in scripture. The crown of life is referred to here and also in Revelation 2 and 10. And it's bestowed upon those who persevere under trials. Jesus mentioned this crown when he tells the church in Smyrna not to be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. What these crowns are going to be, I really can't tell you because I just don't know. Then James says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Possibly James is saying here that temptation is also one of the trials, or the many trials we all have to face. And particularly so for those who want to live close to the Lord. The scriptures give us clear distinction between trials and temptations. God allows us to go through trials for our benefit and to teach us important truths which enable us to grow in grace and in our knowledge of him. Satan sends temptation to turn us away from God and hinder us in our spiritual growth. Have you noticed how quickly God gets blamed when things go wrong? Why did God allow this to happen? And that can come from Christians and non-Christians as well. Some Christians can even come up with a lame excuse for falling into temptation and saying, well, God made me like this. It's his fault. I can't help it. James says, don't you dare say God is tempting you. The one thing that God cannot do, God cannot tempt and entice you to sin because he himself is, cannot be tempted with evil. He doesn't have the impulse or desire to sin. He's perfect and completely holy. And I find that hard for to understand from my background, being perfect and completely holy. So then, James says, because God is good and cannot be tempted with evil, he himself tempts no one. Stop blaming God and realise that the source of your temptation is, not, is your old nature. 
and the desires for evil that come from that nature. Paul found that out for himself. And in Romans 7, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. <coughs> Pardon me. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But I do, if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It's sin living in me that does it. Does that ring a bell with you? It does with me, that's for sure. And it's something we'll battle with as long as God leaves us on this world. <clears throat> I read of a young pastor who chatted with a godly 78-year-old friend. The older gentleman recorded, recounted to him a recent trip to Amsterdam where he realised he was going to have to park and walk through a red-like district to where he was going to go. So he parked his car and then he prayed that God would protect him from temptation as he walked, after, walked past all the pornography stores and massage parlours. And the pastor interrupted, excuse me sir, I don't mean to offend you but you're 78 years old and you've had are you telling me you're worried about sexual temptation at your age and after all those years of walking with the Lord? The older man replied, son, just because I'm old doesn't mean the blood doesn't throw through, flow through my veins. We old guys know we're sinners. We've had lots of experience. If you don't keep away from what you may desire, it can ruin your life. It's a battle we're all going to have for the rest of our lives. I'm glad Paul added that extra verse. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember this promise from 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. The last two verses in our section this morning. James says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shift shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Don't be deceived, says James. Are you getting strange emails and, and text messages these days which you realise that's not right? It's a scammer trying to rip you off. Well, I know we all do it. Believers going through trials are especially vulnerable to spiritual scammers. Satan can whisper in your mind, so your God is good and powerful, eh? Well, why does he let you go through this trial? Either he's not very good or he's not very powerful. And he's quick to use the trials of life and the circumstances we face to cast doubt on his sovereign character by causing us to doubt his word, question his goodness, or blame him for the difficulties we face in life. So, don't be deceived, says James. The truth of God's character and purposes 
are a bit more difficult and not so obvious when we're going through difficult circumstances. Remember this, who God is does not change when our circumstances change. He doesn't go from being a good God to being a bad God when we're going through trials. He's still the source of all the good in our lives. He never changes. So don't get into the way of questioning God's goodness because of the suffering and trial you might be going through. James uses a play on words there where he describes God as the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We know the sun burns brightly all the time, but we on the earth here see shifting shadows because as the earth revolves around the shadow, we can watch it moving across the world. And as the clouds come over the sun, there's a shadow that moves across. From our perspective, we see shadows. But the reality is unchanged. The sun is always there, both day and night, even though we can't see it all the time. It's one of the heavenly lights that God created. No matter what your perspective is of the goodness of God or his gifts when things get tough, God is still there in his goodness, his holiness, perfection, and the loving fatherly attitude he has toward us, his children. And he continues to delight in giving us good gifts. I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. Don't be misled, my dear brothers. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. The greatest gift that God has given to us is the gift of his son who came into this world so that we could be born again. He was that true word that came from God. Hold on to that thought in the middle of trials. God loved us and cared so much about us, he chose to give us new birth by sending his son to die. And he chose you and he's chosen me. And this was no afterthought. Ephesians 1 tells us even before he made the world, God loved us, chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God has cared about us from the beginning and he now considers us his prized possession. You and I are the prized possession of the almighty God. That's an amazing thing. What more evidence do we need that our God is good and loving and powerful and faithful to us? No matter how dark our circumstances might be at the moment, nothing can change the incredible good gift that God has given to us in his son because he chose us, he loves us, he cares for us. No wonder Peter says, Give all your worries and cares to God because he cares for you. To sum up, James gives us a practical, down-to-earth advice about what our attitude should be when we're faced with all kinds of trials, temptations and difficulties in life. James might have been writing originally to Jewish believers to encourage them to endure. 
but his words are just as meaningful to us today. We need to follow his advice about practical Christian living that reflects a genuine faith that transforms lives, both ours and those we come in contact with day by day. Back in 1901, a Methodist minister called Frank Graff, I think it is, G-R-A-E-F-F, wrote a beautiful hymn we're going to sing together now. It was while passing through a very serious trial and experiencing severe despondency, doubt and physical agony that Reverend Frank wrote this hymn. And we're going to sing it tonight. And we're going to sing it, and because it's got four verses and all the words are good, we're going to sing the four verses, but we'll sing verse one and two, then the chorus, verse three and four, then the chorus. You know it, Barry, don't you? You can come out here and stand beside me. We'll sing it together with the, old, with the other the team behind it. Come on, Barry, that's the way. I'll, I'll turn this off. Jesus, give them my 